Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Hello and welcome. Good evening and thank you for joining us to our, for our TIFF Talk Tuesday. Uh, we are very excited to have a special guest, Dr. James Bardoner. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bardoner. Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, as a reminder, my name is Andrea Millers and I'm with Endogastric Solutions. Um, but before we start, I do want to give a little bit of background on Dr. Bardoner. Um, after graduating with a BS in computer science from Clemson University, Dr. Bardoner realized that he was being called into healthcare. He earned his MD degree at USC School of Medicine in Columbia in Greenville, South Carolina, and then trained in surgery at East Tennessee State University. He enjoys all areas of surgery, and he actually is located in Augusta, Georgia. Um, again, thank you, Dr. Bardoner, for uh, joining us this evening. I know we're very excited to have you here, and the people that are on or watching are excited as well. Thank you again. Fantastic. So let's go ahead and start. You know, we're here to talk about GERD and the TIF procedure. So I'll let you kind of um, start us off by explaining what GERD is and what patients um, that are suffering from GERD, what, what, what would they, what symptoms would they be feeling or having? Yeah. So uh, GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease is basically a problem with the stomach, not being able to hold on to what it ought to. And the way we were designed is that the esophagus kind of propels anything you're swallowing down into your stomach. And then there's a little bit of a tapering and a slight angulation, and then a little kind of a sphincter muscle that opens and closes there at the bottom of the esophagus that holds everything in the stomach, even though it's churning and squeezing and generating all kinds of pressure down in your belly. Uh, the stomach does that to move things around and help with the digestive process. And there's a lot of acid intentionally secreted in the stomach. Uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease means that some of those stomach contents are getting back up into the esophagus, uh, despite all of the mechanisms in place to try to keep them confined to the stomach. Um, and that can be damaging to the esophagus. It can also, uh, the vapors of it, even if there's not actual liquid getting as far up as the lungs and the trachea, the vapors from the, the acidic reflux can also be damaging to the lungs and the airways. Uh, so I, I, I say what GERD is, is usually misery for whoever has it, but it's, it's uh, a process where things just can find their way back out of the stomach, which is not how we were designed to, to function. Right, right. And, you know, they t often talk about um, 
typical and atypical symptoms. Can you explain kind of the differences between between those kind of symptoms, if you don't mind? Yeah, so when people talk about typical, I mean, if you think of acid and what would go along with it if it were someplace where it's not supposed to be, you know, those are, those are usually the more typical symptoms of, you know, uh, burning in your chest, sometimes an aching discomfort. Um, it tends to be more present after uh, meals or if you've been uh, lying supine because that makes, or sorry, if you've been lying flat because it makes it easier for things to find their way up out of the stomach. Um, you can also see more atypical symptoms and those tend to be um, not as obvious. So it can involve the lungs with frequent coughing, throat clearing, uh, hoarseness, again, because those vapors can be very irritating to the vocal cords and to the lungs. Um, Sometimes people will just have dysphagia, again, because the esophagus can get irritated and, uh, sorry, dysphagia meaning that um, food doesn't go down easily when you swallow. Um, and so it can feel like it's getting caught in your throat or, um, or that you're just having a hard time getting the food to go down into your stomach. Right. right. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of questions from patients asking the differences between GERD and, and LPR or, you know, what is the, the difference of LPR, if you don't mind explaining that? Yeah, so uh, gastroesophageal reflux, we already touched on. LPR, laryngopharyngeal reflux, just means that something is getting as far up as the um, thoracic or the, the inflow to your, your uh, windpipe. So normally... You know, air and food obviously go through the same hole for a little bit, but then the trachea, which is what heads to your lungs, splits off um, towards the front of your body, and the esophagus, which is what goes down to your stomach, stays more posterior or towards the towards your spine, towards your back. Uh, if you get acidic vapors or, heaven forbid it, you know, actual gastric contents, whether it's acid or food or whatever else, as far up as the the level where the trachea splits that can be very irritating to the vocal cords and to the the larynx which is the very upper part of the swallowing system and you oftentimes get patients complaining of losing their voice or um, even singing I, i've heard a lot of patients who've not been or lost their voice and haven't been able to sing um, because of of their uh, GERD and, and LPR, if you will. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what, um, I know when patients see you as a general surgeon, they're probably already along that path where it's really bad, but um, prior to, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, but what do you guys, uh, what do you generally uh, recommend patients to do to manage their GERD symptoms kind of initially before even medical therapy and yeah. then eventually surgical therapy? Yeah, so so I, I always tell people I'm a surgeon and I try not to operate because if it was me, I, I wouldn't want surgery, honestly. Um, right. So I focus more on conservative things and it, it'll depend on how severe it is. And sometimes I have people come in and they're just miserable. And if I give them a questionnaire of how bad their symptoms are, they are at the extreme wrong end of it. And so for them, I don't, I don't torture them with things that I don't think are going to work. But for more mild, manageable disease, especially if it's just occasional or with certain foods. I, I tell people, number one, pay attention to what you're eating. Mm -hmm. so there are certain foods that are going to make you more prone to having reflux. Um, anything that's got a lot of meat content or fat content to it, 
the stomach can actually sense what you are eating. And if there is a lot of what we call lipids or fats or proteins, you need a lot more acid to help break that down into the small little molecules that your body can absorb. And so your stomach will dial up the acid in response to that. So uh, I tell people, uh, avoid fats, avoid you know, excessive amounts of meat. You can eat smaller meals, uh, you know, smaller meals and just a little bit closer together rather than a bunch of big meals spaced really far apart. Uh, stay upright for at least a few hours after you eat. Don't eat in your bedtime because as soon as you lie flat, there is again all that pressure. And if you've got a full stomach anyway, then it's just going to ask for problems. Yeah. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about medical therapy before we talk about different options for GERD? Let's talk about medical therapy and, and taking, uh, you know, all of whether it's PPIs or Tums or, you know, antacids. Can you talk a little bit about what that does and how it works? Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, we don't have pills that will stop reflux. We have uh, pills that will try to make it so it's not as bad when it does reflux. So uh, nothing's going to actually eliminate the reflux, but there are two kind of broad categories that you can think of. Um, things like Tums, Maalox, Pepto-Bismol, things like that um, will go into your stomach and try to bind some of the acid or provide a protective coating. Uh, so that it, it's not as damaging to the body. And then when you talk about uh, H2 blockers like Pepsid or there's the proton pump inhibitors, which have been around, I think, since the late 80s, um, they, both of those types of drugs act directly on the stomach to try to minimize the amount of acid that it secretes. So right. you can either try to sop it up and, and provide a barrier, or you can try to eliminate the amount of acid secreted in the first place. Both of those Later two options have been kind of the mainstay for medical therapy here lately, um, particularly the proton pump inhibitors. And again, they, they work on your stomach to cause it to make less acid so that whatever gets out of your stomach is you know closer to a neutral pH and hopefully not as damaging. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, I was on a TIFF talk last week and the physician said that uh, no, there's no medication to stop regurgitation. And I think that's a big complaint that a lot of these patients have is the regurgitation. Can you talk a little bit about that and why why the medication does not, not help that? So the, I mean, again, the problem with reflux is it's a structural problem. You know, normally the esophagus comes down and takes a little bit of a turn as it goes into your stomach. And the, the stomach, um, normally the stomach is kind of wrapped around the esophagus just a little bit. It's kind of shouldered up on it so that it makes a long flap valve, meaning it's a lot uh, wider at the top than it is at the bottom. So if you've ever seen like, a, like an Inuit fishing basket or something like that that you put in a stream, it's really easy for the fish to swim in because it's really wide at the mouth and then it's very tight down at the bottom. So it's hard for stuff to get back out. Um, we don't yeah. have pills or exercises or therapy that we can send you to to kind of recreate that normal anatomy down there at the lower esophageal sphincter. So the best we can do is kind of band-aids and try to make it so that what does come back out, if it comes back out, is, is less damaging to your body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I like that analogy. <laughs> the fishing basket. Uh, doctor uh, last week mentioned the ice cream cone. I was like, oh yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so. 
Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the different treatment options for GERD today. You know, I know, obviously, we're going to talk about TIF, but there's, you know, the Nissen fund duplication and so on and so forth. So if you could talk about that, that'd be great. So uh, the broad categories, I, th I think of three. There's always the conservative things that patients can do on their own. We kind of touched on that. So, you know, staying upright, not eating big, heavy meals. Uh, there are also certain substances you can avoid, like alcohol, nicotine, chocolate, menthol. All of those cause the lower esophageal sphincter to relax. One step up from that would be medical therapy. So again, there's the Tums, Maalox, things like that to kind of absorb or uh, help buffer the acid. And then there's the H2 blockers and uh, proton pump inhibitors. So if you get beyond that and you're looking at procedures, um, there are surgical procedures. Um, and a significant proportion of reflux is also due to having what's called a hiatal hernia. So there's a muscle called the diaphragm that separates the lungs from, and the chest from the belly. There has to be a hole there, but it's normally a fairly tight hole so that your esophagus can pass through from your, you know, from your mouth down into your belly. Um, but if you have a hiatal hernia, that means that that hole has been stretched a little bit and it can actually allow part of your stomach to slide up into your chest. So if you have that, then we would have to repair that in order to have any hope of you know, really controlling your reflux. Um, and surgical procedures for that, you know, obviously you fix the hernia, and then it's a question of what do you do about the reflux. So you can do what's called a Nissen, uh, where they do basically a full wrap and tie the stomach around the esophagus. And I, I think it had to have been some kind of a mad scientist or someone, someone who was high. I don't, I, I'm trying to imagine who came up with the idea of like, well, I'm just going to tie the stomach in a knot around the esophagus. Like it, <laughs> it, it came about in a time, I guess, when we were a little bit more cavalier about surgical techniques and developing them. But you, that, that's literally what you do. If the esophagus normally comes down into the stomach, you take the stomach from one side, pull it around behind the esophagus, and then suture it to itself in front. Um, that is a very non-selective way to increase the pressure there so that it's harder for stuff to get out of your stomach. Um, and that's, that's what we want is to keep things in the stomach, but that also means that it's harder to get things in the stomach in the first place because mm -hmm. it, it, it's not selective. You know, the, the pressure is always increased whether you're swallowing or refluxing. And it can lead to um, problems swallowing, things getting caught in your esophagus. And it's, it, the way it, aligns the fibers of the lower esophageal sphincter is not how it was designed to work and so it, it doesn't i don't like it i've actually quit doing it there's a lot of papers that show that it's no better than another technique called a toupee where you do just a partial wrap of the stomach around itself again that's it's not a selective way to address the low tone of the lower esophageal sphincter so it still has the chance of dysphagia although it's very very low uh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, go ahead. So those are the surgical wraps. There's also a technique called the Lynx procedure where you implant magnets into the esophagus to try to help. Again, all of these focus on increasing the, um, the pressure there at the lower esophageal sphincter to help keep things in your stomach. Uh, I don't necessarily like the Lynx uh, because it, A, it's a, a magnet. It's a me metallic object right there to your esophagus. And so they can put pressure in places and causes it, it can erode through into your esophagus, basically. Um, it's kind of like having a bed sore at the bottom of your esophagus from all the pressure from those magnets. Thanks. Um, it's also 
can be unfun, I'll say, to try to retrieve those. Mm. Gotcha. And then there's the TIFF. So. so perfect segue. Why don't you explain to everybody what the TIFF is? Um, what does it stand for and, and, and how does it work? So it's the transoral incisionless fundoplasty. And you have a very, I think, sleek, well-designed device. I didn't design it. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I just, I like <laughs> it. Um, where it will slide down your esophagus into the stomach and it can actually, it goes in straight and then will bend back on itself. And the idea is that it's just gonna kind of roll the stomach back up around the esophagus like it was originally designed to be. Um, and help recreate that long segment flap valve. So uh, normally if your esophagus is coming down, the stomach is kind of hugged up around it a little bit, but with increases in abdominal pressure, whether it's from obesity or from just repeatedly eating large meals or whatever it is, you can damage that sphincter so that instead of the stomach being up around it, it's more like a, a ball, which is your stomach with a straw stuck in the top and it just comes straight down in it and you can see damage of that valve so that it doesn't function as well. The procedure, like I said, helps slide it up and then you fire fasteners, which are made of a uh, dissolvable polymer so that it's nothing permanent left behind. Um, they do dissolve over the course of months and your body will replace them with scar tissue to help put things back the way they ought to be. Um, yeah, it can be done with no cuts on the abdomen as long as you have you know smaller than a two centimeter hernia and in and out same day. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, we get questions a lot about um, the con concomitant procedure. Maybe we can explain that a little bit. Um, you did talk about the hiatal hernia and then doing the TIF procedure. Um, we get questions as to, well, can I just get the hiatal hernia fixed and not get the TIF? Or can I just get the TIF if I have a hiatal hernia? Will that actually um, rectify, you know, my, my situation. Can you discuss what the, why that's important most of the time to fix both or not, you know, what, why we can fix one and not the other? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so again, it, as long as your hernia defect is smaller than two centimeters and, you know, if this is your diaphragm and you've got a hernia, so it's a hole, letting something slide up into your chest. Uh, you can have part of your stomach vertically up in your chest, or you can actually have a two centimeter wide hole. If, as long as it's smaller than that, meaning there's not too much in your chest and the hole's not too small, the TIF is all you would need. Um, and again, it basically just recreates that anatomy to help kind of anchor the, the lower esophageal sphincter in that junction between your esophagus and your stomach down in the belly where it belongs. If you do have to have surgery for a hiatal hernia repair, uh, you don't always have to have a fundoplasty or a fundoplication after it. It depends on what the sphincter looks like. Um, it is, I would say, exceedingly rare, though, that that's the case. And the reason is, you know, again, if you imagine a hole as it progressively enlarges and it lets more things slide up into your chest, um, it's very easy for the stomach to get stretched or almost kind of sheared as it, you know, as things are getting pushed into your chest, it, it tends to damage that valve there. Um, so that instead of being wrapped up around it, it kind of slips off as it slides up into your chest. Right. Um, so the, the first step is fixing the hiatal hernia, if you do have one larger than two centimeters. And then what type of approach you take for the fundoplasty after that depends on the surgeon 
Uh, the goal is to get the junction between your esophagus and your stomach easily back down in the abdomen under no tension, so there's nothing trying to pull it back up in the chest. And then once that defect has been tightened, you could do a TIF, you could do a Nissen, you could do a toupee, you could do nothing as long as the valve looks good. Um, but again, it's very rare that someone would have a, a competent valve there after having a decent size hernia. Right. Perfect. Thank you for, for explaining that. We do have a couple of questions that have popped up, so we're going to try and get through those. Uh, someone's asking, they're taking omeprazole for a lifetime. Is it not damaging to my other organs? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of studies that show long-term risks. In general, with the PPIs, if you are going to prescribe them as, as directed, you're supposed to use just short courses of them. So no more than six weeks if you have pretty bad esophagitis. Um, I think the box will actually say two weeks, no more than three times per year. Um, sometimes we'll go beyond that for very you know, specific health conditions. But there are, I would say your bones are the main organ that they're at risk for damaging because it can lead to osteoporosis. And again, it, it, it stems back to they, they neutralize acid. You have to have acid to properly digest and absorb what you're eating. So you don't break down proteins as well. Um, it can lead to anemia, osteoporosis from impaired calcium absorption. Uh, there's increased risks of pneumonia. Um, and again, all of this is because you don't have acid like you're supposed to. Um, so the, the iron can't be absorbed as well because of something called intrinsic factor, which requires stomach acid to be absorbed. Uh, and then if you think of your stomach as kind of like the doorway to your intestines, there's a defense mechanism also involved with the acid. The idea is that if there's any bacteria or if you're eating something that is maybe just a little bit past its expiration date, things like that, um, <laughs> it, the, the acid will help kill those pathogens before they can get to the rest of your body. So there has been documented, it's called you know, small bowel bacterial overgrowth. Mm. Uh, it, if you have neutral pH in your stomach, you get all that stuff farther downstream in your small intestines and the intestines... The colon is used to having lots of bacteria, not a problem for the colon. The small bowel doesn't generally have much bacteria at all, and so you can get a lot of bloating and discomfort. We call it dyspepsia, but that's all been an, a known side effect of the PPIs with chronic use. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and then another question, this is from Derek. He's saying, some docs say that TIF is reversible and others say that it isn't. Which one is it if it... Which one is it if it needs to be, un can it be undone, basically? Um, so I suppose you could go in there and reverse it. I've never seen a need to. I'm not aware of anyone who would need to try. Usually when we talk about reversing a fundoplication, it's because of the terrible side effects. So you'll see that a lot with a Nissen, a toupee, a door, any of those fundoplications where people basically just can't swallow afterwards because of dysphagia. And, and so we do reverse those, or I reverse those on occasion. Uh, so I'll say, A, I've never, I can't imagine why you would ever have to reverse a TIF because it doesn't have the side effect profile of those other procedures. Uh, and then if you had to, it would be doable, but it's kind of a, an ordeal. So the, you'd, you'd have to basically cut through the scar tissue to unwrap it off of the esophagus. And again, we do that routinely for the other procedures. I, I can't imagine why you would not be able to do it for a TIF. Right. Uh, I just, I've never had to do it. 
And yeah. I can't imagine why you would need to if you're not having the side effects of these other procedures. Thank you. And uh, question about uh, post-op TIF uh, and hiatal hernia, uh, the combined procedure. Uh, what does that look like? What do patients have to do, you know, post-op? You know, they, everyone talks about the diet. Um, and and I'm, I have questions on here about exercise limitations. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what they can expect post-op? So um, the thing about the TIF is you do have to baby it a little bit while it's healing. And when we were securing the wrap, you're using these little plastic fasteners that look like what holds socks together when you buy them from the store. And they're not very long. It's a short segment, you know, just a centimeter or two that's anchoring that wrap in place. And we'll use a lot of them to help kind of evenly distribute the tension. But what you don't want to do is stress that too much early on in the post-op process while it's healing. And that stress can come from swallowing big food boluses too soon before it's ready or from putting too much pressure on it before it's really had a chance to scar in. Mm -hmm. so exercise, I tell my patients, don't lift more than 20 pounds for a, at least a month after surgery. Again, because if you put a lot of if you really engage your core and put a lot of pressure there, you can you know, pop those fasteners and shear them off. Mm. And then um, I, I say it's funny because people tend to complain the most about the diet, but then also they really enjoy the side effects of the diet. <laughs> what I mean is, um, it's two weeks of just liquids, then two weeks of pureed like baby food, two weeks of soft solids, and then at, at six weeks you finally get back to eating whatever you want. So it, it is a, a, a more of a process on the diet, but you know, even though I have people complaining about the diet, they all say, I love that I've lost, you know, 15 pounds <laughs> and <laughs> they, you know, I did it to one of my staffers in my office and she, you know, that was all the kick she needed. She was fluffy, I'll say to begin with. And she's now down <laughs> to 40 pounds because she's, wow. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, it, it's intentional. It's not, you know, it's not yeah. anything where she, she can't eat, you know, she's doing great. She loves it. Um, but it was just that little kick she needed to kind of jumpstart a healthier lifestyle for herself. And so she's been exercising now she's eating right. Um, that's great. Yeah. And they say too, right. Um, it's almost like you have to relearn how to eat, chew your food right. really well, um, slow down when you're, when you're eating and whatnot. Is she able to eat all the foods that she wants yeah. now? Yeah, she eats whatever she wants, and it, it, it that's a, I like your analogy there of kind of relearning, because I, I grew up, you know, with my parents telling me, you've got to clear your plate, and they would give me kind of big portions to begin with, and we're, I think we as Americans especially are taught from a young age to overeat, and so we, we put too much in our stomach, which is where a lot of these reflux issues come from. Um, so I, I've, I've noticed anecdotally, just I've seen a fair number of people who say that, you know, they they feel full a little more easily afterwards. And I don't know if that's because their stomach shrinks up during the six weeks that they're on their special diet or, or what, but it, they, you know, I tell them, you know, listen to your body. Basically. Exactly. Chew yeah. Listen food. to your body. Listen to your body, chew your food, swallow, um, you know, don't eat in such a rush, give your body time to tell you that it's full you know, rather than just shoving yeah. what you can down quickly. Yes, we live in that society, right? We're just always in a hurry. <laughs> um, we have another question from Deborah. She's asking, how long does a Nissen fundoplication last? So the actual fundoplication 
it's very rare that that would ever go away. Um, they can they can slip, and that is, isn't usually a nightmare if it happens. But when, when most people ask that question, what they mean is how long is its effects going to last? Um, and the reason I say that is because we, we know that there's going to be a recurrence by about 10 years. It's I think 60% of patients will have a recurrence by 10 years, and it's somewhere around 30 or 40% at five years. Um, the wrap is still intact, though, so your stomach is still tied around your esophagus. It's just that you are starting to have reflux again, even though your, your wrap is still there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, another question. Uh, are more are there more possibilities of cancer with GERD? Yes. And Good that's question. another side effect. But cancer, most types of cancer come about because of repeated stress on tissues. So if you smoke, that that's uh, harm to your body and it leads to lung cancer. Well, lots of cancers. Um, repeated reflux. Again, your esophagus just wasn't designed to tolerate acid. Your stomach was. So if you get repeated injury to your esophagus, uh, that can lead to inflammation. And chronic inflammation anywhere in your body can lead to cancer if it happens long enough. So yeah. Yeah, you can see uh, car uh, can cancer of the esophagus form at the bottom of the esophagus because of repeated acid injury. Right. Perfect. And a question I've read um, that there's shoulder pain might be experienced post-op TIF. Um, why does that happen and how long does it generally last? And, and I'll say that's not unique to TIF. That's anything that messes with the diaphragm. But there's a nerve called the phrenic nerve that supplies sensation to the diaphragm. And it it's not a very precise innervation. So anytime you irritate that phrenic nerve, most people describe it as left shoulder pain, or sometimes it's pain in their neck and shoulders, but it's what we call a referred pain. So anything that messes with the diaphragm down there, whether you have a hiatal hernia repair, a TIF, and this and any of those things, that yes. happens. And how long does it normally last on patients? Um, you know, I, I, worst case scenario that I've read about, I've never seen, but I've seen it, you know, seen it documented lasting up to months. Mm. Most, most people, it's just for a day or so afterwards, and it kind of okay. eases off. Uh, average, I'd say, is you know, a couple of days, no more than a week. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Uh, one, one other question. Zach's asking, can a TIF be performed to fix a slipped Nissen fund application? Uh, it depends on how badly slipped. If you're if it actually is slipped, meaning the wrap is very far up the esophagus, that's probably going to require an operative revision of the Nissen to take it down and then convert it to a TIF. Okay. Um, if it hasn't slipped too badly and there's no hiatal hernia, that's one of the benefits of the TIF is you can you can redo a TIF pretty easily over another fundoplication. And I've done it over a TIF once I repaired the hiatal hernia that had come back. Or sorry, I've done a TIF over a Nissen without having to take down the Nissen once I had repaired the hiatal hernia. Okay. Thank you. Um, and one more question. Can TIP be performed if a manometry shows frequent failed paralysis? Sorry, I'm trying to read it. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, peristalsis. Peristal that's what I was like. I think, yeah, okay. Peristalsis. Yeah, so food doesn't just fall from your mouth to your stomach. You can swallow upside down, and it's because of that peristalsis, meaning that the esophagus contracts in a coordinated way to help propel food you know, or liquid or whatever you're swallowing from your mouth to your stomach. Um, 
there are risks to any procedure. I've not seen dysphagia with the TIF. And again, it's because you're not actually increasing the pressure there at the lower esophageal sphincter. So um, it's, it's much less likely to end up with dysphagia. Um, if you have literally terrible peristalsis and no contractions, then you, you may have other issues that need to be addressed before talking about reflux. Um, but the TIF itself has you know, negligible increase in dysphagia afterwards. So if you do have impaired peristalsis, I'd still feel comfortable offering a TIF. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, and then does TIF resolve your LPR sy symptoms, especially the breathing and burping part? part? Yeah, any, anything that's due to the reflux, um, the TIF fixes. It fixes the reflux, it fixes the symptoms. Fantastic. All right. Well, that is all the questions we have today. Uh, before we, you know, conclude in the evening, um, is there any that you would give to these patients um, that are suffering from GERD, you know, whether they're on PPIs for many years or, or just starting PPIs um, and or continuing to have, um, you know, really bad symptoms from GERD, what would you recommend for them to do? Um, I, I tell everybody just kind of think, think down the road, basically, because we have a lot of providers, particularly GI doctors in the U.S., who will keep people on PPIs long term. And it, it's, it's just kind of a Band-Aid. It's not addressing the problem. It, it, like I said, it neutralizes the pH, but it doesn't stop the reflux. And there are long-term risks to the PPIs. Um, there's also long-term costs to the PPIs as opposed to something that you could have done and then be done with it. So, right. Yeah, perfect. Be your own advocate is what I always tell um, patients to do, right? Um, and if it's not the answer you don't like to hear, then maybe do more research and, and find someone that can give you different options. Um, for, for treatment of GERD. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for joining us this evening, Dr. Bardoner. Uh, I know we really appreciate it. I know the patients that are watching appreciate it. And um, if you're in the Augusta, Georgia area, is that, did I say that right? You're in Augusta. Um, you, yep, you can um, look up Dr. Bardoner and find him. Um, but if you're not in the Augusta, Georgia area um, or somewhere else, and um, you can go to girdhelp.com. Uh, we do have a physician finder on there and you can put in your state or your zip code and you'll be able to find a physician, uh, a TIF trained physician near you. Um, well, again, Dr. Bardoner, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening and we'll definitely catch everybody on our next TIF talk uh, next Tuesday. Thank you and have a great evening. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.